Welcome to the Zizek and Son podcast. Today we're speaking with acclaimed film director Sophie Fiennes about her work with Slavoj Zizek. Sophie is the director of Hoover Street Revival, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, Of Your City's Grass Will Grow, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, Grace Jones, Bloodlight and Bami, and most recently, Four Quartets. Consider supporting us on Patreon. You get access to many more episodes, the Discord, but most importantly, the four-month course that just wrapped up with Professor Matthew Flissfetter on Zizek's 1991 text, For They Know Not What They Do, Enjoyment as a Political Factor. And a big thank you to all of the Patreons who have supported us over the last three years. Bye-bye. How did you first encounter film? What drew you to it? I think I just came to it as being hugely affected and excited by film. I remember it was a very vivid experience. I was babysitting, living in the countryside. And, you know, in those days, you switch on the TV at nine o'clock and the children are asleep and you're in someone's house for the next three hours. And you think, well, what's on the telly? And, you know, I was fortunate enough to switch on the telly and it was the enigma of Caspar Hauser, the, the Herzog film which starts with, with, with this blowing corn, this image, this really held image of this field of corn and this movement of the corn and this duration in this moment of, of you know, taking you in through this shot. That was a kind of like road to Damascus moment, a revelatory moment. And I was in and I, and I was fascinated by the quality of Bruno S and the whole world of the film. And I just remember going back home sort of you know through the damp rainy lanes of Wiltshire and my mother kind of had picked me up to take me back and I must have been about 14 or 15 and I remember just thinking I want to do that like that that it was like a hand reaching out from the set you know tv set and pulling you in by the by your collar and going come on you know and I remember thinking but I'm a girl I'm a girl I'm sure this is what men do. And then I thought, oh, but I played, I was, I, we'd done a production at my school of Twelfth Night and I had to play Orsino. And there's all this cross-dressing in Shakespeare of men dressing as women. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just dress up like a man or, you know, I'll just psychically think of myself as like switching my, my you know, I'll just have that confidence that you see that men have and you see women as being something different, not occupying these spaces. I'll just pretend, let's pretend, you know. Um, and so I won't be frightened of the fact that I'm a girl and that there's probably going to be kind of barriers. 
but it was a very affecting moment for me. And I just, you know, in England, there's a sort of Anglo-Saxon attitude to filmmaking. And I was more drawn to the European smell of the film. The European films had a stronger smell. They were more ambiguous. They were more kind of, they were more image driven. They didn't necessarily come from like directly the novel, you know. And so, you know, then sort of, so once you sort of start, you know, you, you kind of encounter you're like in a sort of extraordinary world of, you know, the French New Wave, you're discovering Bergman, discovering all those important authors, obviously Godard, Truffaut, and then, you know, Antonioni was a big effect on me. And, you know, when I started, when I went to art school, I then went to all the rep cinemas that were in London at the time, because there was no DVD then, there was no, there wasn't even VHS. But there was this tradition of rep cinemas, so you could, so you'd have Time Out, the the magazine, the weekly magazine, London Time Out. You'd look in the film section, and I would sort of scour it to see what was on that week. Oh yeah, they're playing Persona, you know, in this little tiny twenty seater cinema in Water Street. Great. So you're kind of educating yourself, taking yourself out to see these films in all in a range of what now some of these cinemas have become like you know the Brixton Ritzy was a great rep cinema um the everyman they would show these kind of masterpieces and then you know the national film theater the nft now the bfi south bank and that was the big museum that was the jewel in the crown for me as a person discovering films so you know they'd have a tarkovsky season they would have an antonioni season they would have a fassbinder season they would have a Lenny Riefenstahl or Busby Berkeley or, you know, film noir. And, you know, they would have all those, you know, you could just immerse yourself and go and see films. And then I think that's really where I got my education just from watching films. I mean, but I remember even before, even before seeing the Enigma of Caspar Hauser, because I was a really, really, fully signed up David Bowie fan the point at which I was a David Bowie fan of course he was doing arguably like he was doing like scary monsters um ashes to ashes you know but there was always the back catalogue of Bowie to discover and you know the interviews that he would do and so I remember you know he would talk a lot about Kubrick and this is when I was about 12 or 13 um he would and we lived in London at that point and so you know there I would always I remember that The Shining came out and I was like 13 and I went at two in the afternoon on a Saturday by myself to see The Shining. <laughs> it was an 18 registered film, but I think they were so happy to have any customer that they didn't mind that it was a 13 year old <laughs> girl by themselves. They were like, there were three of us in the, you know, in the cinema at two in the afternoon on the, in the Fulham ABC. Um, so, you know, I think my appetite was whetted by, by sort of that, seeing that kind of cinema, um, you know, uh, even before I saw that Casper Hauser, where I actually thought I want to do this, but I had, I mean, and even even going even further back, when I was about seven or eight, and we lived in this town in 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 Ireland called Kilkenny, and um, we lived in it was a cul-de-sac, a street where there was a cul-de-sac. At the end of the cul-de-sac was a cinema. I had a boyfriend at the time who lived opposite, and he and I would sort of just do all kinds of funny things, like you know, slightly streetwise kids in the immediate locality. And one of the things that we liked to do was watch films that we knew were like 
beyond our age thing. But we would look through this hole where the exit door was right by the screen. You know, like the exit door was yeah, by yeah. the screen, but you know, you could stand outside like a very sort of like blue velvet kind of moment of you could, <laughs> there was a place where you could look through, squeeze, you know, squint your eye and look through, and you could see this huge luminant screen in the darkness. It was like mad, you know. Mm. And I remember we watched Some of Gone with the Wind on this huge screen. Because I never really went to the cinema properly in that. I mean, I went a couple of times. But yeah, it was a sort of, it felt like a parallel world. Yeah. It felt like a parallel world. How did your relationship with Zizek begin? Well, I tell you, well, how it began was that I made this film called Hoover Street Revival, which was about a Pentecostal church community. Um, and I wasn't so much interested in the personality of, the preacher I was more interested in how his sermons and the performance of them as a kind of theatrical event every week how the how the community worked and internalized played with responded to these these kind of performative encounters that were in this form of church preaching and so it was it was more about this idea that for for the community he was it's, this was a message from God. It wasn't about, you know, as much as he's charismatic, he has to be like, you know, he's a vehicle for for the message and it would be Bishop's message. So I, I wanted to res- respect that relationship that he has, that function that he had in that church community. And, you know, when the film came out, it got theatrical release. You know, I was very lucky in many ways, but, you know, the, the sort of left wing cinema going audience for documentaries clearly are not Pentecostal churchgoers on the whole. So I realised that anything you do about religion, it completely winds them up. It's like red rag to a bull. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they just, you know, and, and so I, I kind of enjoyed that. Yeah, I enjoyed the fact that I made, I, I sort of played with the sound, surround sound of the church and put it into the cinema so that a voice behind you is going amen and you think is that someone in the cinema that just responded to bishop's <laughs> message you know so um and i got a kind of mixed it was kind of a marmite film in that some people some re- re- critics absolutely loved it because it's a very so it's a, it's a you know that his the, the preacher is an extraordinary preacher he could really you know connect to he was and also I realized when I worked with him that he was actually very influenced by by existential Christianity and Paul Tillich who'd come you know there was a sort of and he was interested in he was quoting Rollo May a a psychoanalyst from the mid-20th century so he wasn't the obvious kind of prosperity gospel guy at all he would even challenge his congregation so I was interested in actually the, the the fabric of what he said and uh, and then I was frustrated by how the critical response was of and then but then I, I was having a coffee with a friend of mine. This is where conversations are always so important. Having a conversation with a friend of mine called Sean O'Hagan, who's a who's a journalist himself, a writer, and writes a lot about photography. And Sean said, "You know, the guy who would really get that film is Slavoj Žižek. You know, he would understand your project. He would understand what you're up to." And so he gave me, he very kindly photocopied that New Yorker piece on Slavoj, the, the fourth Marx brother, I think it was called. And um, and I read it and then I 
and so then I got the puppet and the dwarf and I was looking into his writing and then he was coming to the ICA a lot then so I went to see some um, of his lectures that he was giving and of course then I realized the more that I read that actually he was also writing about film so then I became fascinated by how he was looking at film because you know the the conventional three three act plot point orientated assumptions about what makes a film work other sort of that's the that's the go-to assumption but as a as me as a as a viewer of cinema i've always found that there are these moments in films that shock you that that things that where you're taken into a it's like a kind of cinematic moment that built up through the through the dramaturgical staging and the cinema and how that that it's these moments that kind of cut through and I saw that he was unpacking those in how he was writing and then of course I've always been interested in you know in in philosophy and poetry I guess you know in how in 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 ideas so I just the more I read the more intrigued and then I just had this idea to approaching to make a film and I didn't know quite what it would be but I got introduced to him by Darian Leader who's a practicing Lacanian psychoanalyst and also brilliant writer on psychoanalysis so he introduced me and I just and Slavoj immediately of course because he's so like he never there's no procrastination at all immediately got back to me and said okay how much time do you need <laughs> um, I think he sort of called me back instantly as I sent the email and then I said well the more time you give me the more I can allow this idea to kind of emerge you know I just I didn't it wasn't like okay the quick old in out you know I'm going to come interview you go away make a film I, I I sort of said I'm actually developing it but I'm really interested in 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 what you're writing so then he said okay I'm going to be in Champaign Illinois for a week and um, if you can get I have to see students in the morning but then I have the afternoon is free and we can meet so we met every day and it was in one of those conversations that I suddenly had this idea of creating these sets and putting him into the films. It was a sort of question of what would happen if he was in the Matrix. I want a third pill. I was discussing with you earlier, Sophie, that, uh, that my mum had had a stroke. And in the sort of 48 hours after she had a stroke, she didn't remember ever having had children. She knew that she got married and, you know, like she would look at her hands and see that her hands were old and that didn't strike her as frightening, but there were these gaps in her memory and like fundamental gaps. So she had no idea who I was. And the way that she was talking and relating to me was like acutely strange because I was talking to my mother before I was born or as if I had never been born. Wow. There was some element of her awareness, some, some element of her awareness where she knew that her husband was in the room. And so when a doctor would ask a series of questions to sort of um, ground her in the world, like what year is it? What is your name? Uh, You know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, at certain points with certain questions, she would sort of glance up at my dad to be like, did I get the answer right? Or can you sort of fucking help me cheat? 
can you can you help me perform myself so I can get out of here you know I was I was describing it to a friend of mine it's it's almost like a, a Marty McFly moment where you're going back in time and m- meeting your mother potentially before you existed mm. to perform yourself this is like it's a very interesting idea we know um, with sort of our pop icons, one of the criticisms that they get is that they become a caricature of themselves. And I think what people mean when they say that is that they over-identify with the public's perception of them. There's like a feedback loop where what what guaranteed or constituted their success is something that is that they try to repeat and there's something in the repetition of it that starts to become dishonest or that the audience feels is inauthentic, right? And this is what it all sort of boils down to. is like the authenticity of the performance of yourself. There was a line in Four Quartets that stood out to me in this regard, at least. The roses had the look of flowers that I looked at. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because the thing about being the fly on the wall is that you have to worry about the spider, right? Like this is this is the joke about the the documentarian. So, yeah. How do you approach the subject of the film and providing some sort of space for them to perform themselves? And, and how do you think about it? Well, I'm more, I'm I'm very. You have to be intuitive to their needs, and it's a bit like you have to kind of make it feel like a space in which they can be uh, and they can use the camera to kind of, they can relate to the camera, but it's it's kind of, I'm neutral with it other than that I'm just making it, um, there's no sense of a judgment from me or a need from me. Like, can you do this? Can you do that? The only thing that I do is not really talk back when I'm filming, but outside of filming, I'm having lots of conversations I mean, I'm having lots of conversations, but at the time of, I remember with 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 Anzam Kiefer, he would say, "Sophie, why don't you talk to me now?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I was filming, <laughs> and I didn't want my idea. It's not because that. So that that's it's a bit like you speak to kind of nourish the subjects, kind of thinking about themselves to give energy to them. A bit like how, because at the moment I'm making one of the films I'm making at the moment is a film about acting with a brilliant uh, theatre director called Declan Donnellan, who has a company called Cheek by Jowl, a small, uh, independent but hugely um, influential theatre company that tours internationally, certainly will have been in Australia. Um, done a lot in Russia, actually, and they've just been working, they've done Oedipus in Romania, they've just been doing a very famous Spanish play called Life is a Dream that they're gonna to be touring in, in the UK, fortunately. Um, and and I'm making this film about the process of working with actors, and I and Declan has a very particular way of doing this, and I realised that there is an equivalence with how because he talks about nourishing the actor's imagination, um, to for them to be present in the in the dramaturgical moment that they're in within a certain text, and it's a bit like that that the speech that I'm the the conversations I'm having. When I'm not necessarily rolling, a kind of nourishing the person that I'm working with to make them understand where my interests are. 
So I'm not a kind of, I'm not coming as a sort of big other of, uh, I'm not the sort of just surveillance, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely being the big other. I'm genuinely a, a witness. <laughs> you know, I am in that moment, I'm functioning in that structure. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the, and, and so in that moment, then, you know, because of this desire for, for, for witness that's embedded in us humans or this idea of you know yeah this the the, the idea of the big other you kind of you're playing that you're in that sort of structure as it were with a camera Definitely. because you also represent some kind of something that lives beyond the moment you know the capturing of time you know so so it's like to allow their freedom and to, to tune them into what matters about what they, they they do or who they are or the moment or you know being with them in the moment like supporting them in the moment but without having to you know there's, we're not chatting about things they, they're doing what they do and I'm I'm filming it how much control did Zizek want in the, the guide process he's really collaborative and, and he's not doesn't seek to control but you know at the same time for me it's very important that i get that i get the right sense that i'm not i mean that's why even in the perverts guide to cinema i always show i work with darian and showed him as a lacanian you know you know am i getting partial objects right here you mm -hmm. know like or if i have questions like so it's very important because i'm representing a field of ideas and I, I mustn't misrepresent it or you know in editing it lose it's very when i'm making these films whether it's grace jones or kiefer you know, it has to work for the poor, engaged and, you know, people who are knowledgeable about this subject, you know, because I, I know for myself, if I see a film about something I know about and it's just missing the point, you know, it's really infuriating. <laughs> so, you know, he didn't, I think it's also understandable that people don't want to look at themselves and don't want to have to see themselves because that interferes with your freedom to be because then you become too much of an observer of yourself. And I, for Slavoj, he was very much like, I don't want to, he didn't, he's never watched any of the films because he's too traumatized to see himself. So he puts a lot of trust in me in that sense. But I also think part of his design, part of his way of being in the world is to not try to control, but to be open and to be kind of, yeah, to be, to engage. That's why, that's part of, I think his, although his, he, he would say it's not completed his analysis, but his extraordinary punctuality, like he will never be late. That thing of being present for someone in that moment, that's an impressive part of him as a person to not con to not try to control me, but to support and trust. But, you know, sometimes I, you know, increasingly he's become more and more kind of participating in, in the, in the development of it. The first film, I just, I, I sort of sort of stole from everything, every idea that I got excited by, and I just was like, you know, a, a child in a sweet shop, and just like these ideas, all they really turned me on, and I really, I feel actually this is an important counter argument to the ideas of plot points and five acts this and that. It's actually what hits us is, is, are these moments I was talking about earlier. So trying to create that as a an opposition to how to think about what film is doing, 
but but now and particularly with the perfect guide to ideology you know for him that was he really wanted to make something about ideology that's a kind of core to his work so of course for that film the sublime object of ideology was a sort of key book to work from but the filmmaker in me kind of would spy like that the mojave desert and that thing about the graveyard of the plains that was one or two lines in a book that jumped out as something as a visual container through which a lot could be explored that image as he conjured it just in those few sentences and what it could mean and then when we were there he he kind of explored it differently the same with coke you know that was a very spontaneous you know like let's just try this with coke and then he came up with this you know this whole shift from the cold coke to the warm coke and then the sort of hidden property of the commodity is turn to shit you know the, the commodity turns to shit as soon as the sort of spectral pleasure in it is gone meaning the freshness of the coke the it oh my god one is thirsty in the desert and what to drink but coke so let's have a drink of coke It's getting warm. It's no longer the real Coke, and that's the problem. You know, this passage from sublime to excremental dimension. When it's Coke properly served, it has a certain attraction. All of a sudden, this can change into shit. It's the elementary dialectics of commodities. It's, it fuels you, it fuels you to see the world differently. Mm. So when I was working, so I, I could take a lot of theory and including Foucault actually on sex. I could take a lot of those ideas to how I could see Grace Jones, what, what felt important, you know, about that thing of the performance of self and the idea that the kind of consummate version of her is the version on stage that's not the fake behind which there's the real it's going against that and saying actually that what she manifests on stage is who she is and that performance isn't a lie in that sense it's actually a manifestation of something that can't happen in drab reality it's the real of something that she needs to communicate and I felt this with Michael Clark you know Michael Clark's had you know as a child had some difficult traumatic things happen to him not least his father committing suicide when he was 12 and when Michael comes onto a stage you know he is there's a it's an encounter with the audience and I always remember he said him saying something to me about performance which is I if I go onto a stage as a dancer you know I might be kind of semi-naked or whatever and there's, there's, you know, however many people sitting in the audience, they're, you know, they're just a big block of people. They're not seen. I'm seen. And I could feel very vulnerable in that moment because everyone's looking at me. But what I do is I get on stage and I turn that vulnerability 180 degrees and I make them vulnerable. I push the vulnerability onto them. And so when you do go and see Michael on stage, you know, you can sort of that, he does that. So there is this very fascinating, I think this is something that's always occurred in my work, this interesting 
relationship of the performance of, of of performance and audience and doing something to the audience. What I love with Slavoj is just taking the audience to a place where then, you know, the ideas shock you, you're confronted. And that was clear to me that that was key to the films with Slavoj or the relationship of working with him. Because when I'd been to Champaign, Illinois, and I'd made this little pilot, and I went to the commissioner, Jan Young husband, who was then the commissioner at Channel 4, and I said, look, can I just show you this material? And she watched, it was a little kind of highlights of where I'd filmed in the, you know, the, in fact, the, the watering the plants in the garden came from that shoot. And then, so I made this small edit and she laughed and she looked and she laughed and she went, oh, he's so funny, he's so funny. And then she went, oh my God, he's really serious, isn't he? <laughs> and I just thought that counterpunch was brilliant. It's like, you're kind of going, and then and actually cut the crap. You know, it's a kind of, and you're, you're winded. And I do like creating that. It's like, I think Four Quartets does that too. It's a sort of, you know, that poem is taking you to a place that's, terrifying but kind of essential to confront that's why I feel it's a bit like the meteor in melancholia it's coming at you and it's like ah but you can't avoid it and so I do I do like to kind of I get I do find that exciting in the edit to, sh to kind of create that sense of confrontation a shock to the system <laughs> it's not just an idea it's kind of physical Yeah, this reminds me of something I read the other day. Um, Bruce Willis in Die Hard 2, he'd had this yeah. he'd had this conception of himself and the character that he was a very serious and, you know, like suave action hero, right? And in order to get on board for the sequel, he said that there can be no smiling and no jokes. And the director was thinking, what the, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, this is the appeal of the character is that he has these sort of sardonic lines and whatever. And so they agreed to shoot two versions of the film, one to placate Bruce and then the other secretly, right? And so they're filming something and it's like cut and Bruce would smile to somebody outside of the frame and they would just keep, they were keeping all of this footage and that was in the final edit. The film is composed of all of these moments of Bruce's naturalness. Like it's a, a wonderful entry into this idea that even the person immersed in the film has no idea what the, the final edit is going to be. And you as an editor, it's the discovery process, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that That's what I love about it. I mean, you need to, you know, it's initial condition dependent. You know, you, you need to create your luck by being as kind of tenaciously and broadly and creatively and, you know, and, and sort of thinking about the consequence of things and trusting yourself, you know, in that process to then see what you got i mean with with working with slavoy i i we never have a script but i do have sort of pillars of ideas or lines of ideas but then i hand it over to him and then he might spontaneously try something or i might say after a take you know this this i don't understand these two bits these two points that you make or 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 i might be missing what i felt from reading something that felt fundamental or very kind of critical 
and then he's not said it and then he then i that's why i have my theory continuity who says oh he missed this bit and then he gets furious again what do you mean we have we have to have the, theory continuity so that we know what has been said and whether what i feel is crucial somehow that i need that he yeah. needs to put into the line but you know we we allow it to be spontaneous uh in in that way but within a parameter and i think it's great that that story about bruce willis because it shows how even in you know making fiction cinema that you know it's still a process that is kind of responsive and intuitive and you know the director that the sign of a good director that they're not just painting it in by numbers which is what always put me off making fiction was this idea that you have a script and then you simply carry it out. I was just going to say this thing, the truth I said, you know, you throw the script away on the first day of shooting, of course, the French New Wave, and then people like Cassavetes, and they were all much more between trying things and experimenting. They were filmmakers before there was genres, and now everyone thinks in terms of genre. Mm -hmm. I find that sort of limiting and depressing because for me, it's it's filmmaking. I mean, obviously, there are fiction stagings with actors, and then there are other ways of making films. But I think everything got conveniently packaged into genres quite quite a few decades ago. That finale of the end of the Pervert's Guide to Ideology was a real was an interesting kind of struggle because Slavoj said that he had a finale, but the finale ended up being seventeen minutes long. <laughs> 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 it's like half the length of the film or a quarter of the length of the film yeah, so, yeah. Um, but that, that point about possibility, impossibility it's a great point, in fact do you have you seen the Jameson or have you read the Jameson, you know, towards an um, American Utopia yeah, 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 you know I've that? got it here that was really interesting, that point about well, there's many points that are made but one being this idea of how social like national conscription that would be social for instance in the uk you know if you have money and your children go to private school you get this kind of certain education that's going to get you through systems in life while the majority of the people going to going to estates are now academies which are you know the new forms of education which are business models they're not really about education they're about business management they're really tech driven in terms of how you're related to your your performance is just measured on pie charts you teachers don't even mark your work you're meant to mark it yourself the only thing they mark is your testing it's really frightening what's happening to education this idea jameson's idea of having conscription where everyone would have to be involved socially together would be brilliant because you would dissolve these barriers that exist in the model that's based on economic people's economic ability to choose as opposed to those who don't um, have that which is the majority of people there, there are so many ways that this idea I'm, I'm amazed that because it's the sort of idea that actually would seem to be a right-wing idea having national service yeah but yeah. coming from James a real kind of Marxist that it understands that if you do want communism, you have to make people a community and you have to, if you want people to understand each, you know, you have to, if people have to get to meet each other. Mm. Children, you know, you have people emerging if they just go through, I mean, you know, education itself has become something that people with means can stay in until their late 20s. Mm -hmm. So this really important formative period of maybe making stuff and being in the world doesn't happen. You're already thinking about 
setting up a family and you haven't had that period of your 20s where you're seeing possibilities that you haven't been made frightened about how you're going to pay for a mortgage you know there are all kinds of structural things that you know are constricting people's sense of their ability to live differently make change for themselves in you know in in the circumstances that we're in but i i did think that that jameson idea where religion could be anything like you just let religion be whatever it is it's like a mad space of explosions of craziness mm-hmm. but you didn't see it as part of the instruction of the working world that it was a kind of create it existed in a creative context i might just go and recharge my coffee cup yeah you, you do the coffee and i'll, I'll meet you in a sec <laughs> yeah, you can have another glass of wine. <laughs> Enjoy the music for a minute. Because yeah, a lot comes with that mm. um, socially, but it's very difficult to get it right because as soon as you make it a sort of injunction, the imp of the perverse wants to it's like if you say i'm gonna go on a diet i'm gonna not gonna i'm not gonna eat and i'm gonna cut my calories and it's like aha no i'm not i'm gonna stuff myself with 10 mil foil you know it's like humans (laughs) this is the problem it's like (laughs) you know it's not it's not as easy as just saying you can do that and you can't do that so policing human behavior it's you can't just order it up it has to be something that it has to be born out of relationship and this is what I see as actually being lost and, and being atomized by, I mean, yes, it's great that we can have this conversation. You're on one side of the world. I'm on the other side of the world. It's great. But it's at the same time, there's a lot in the technology which creates isolation. And I think we do have to be really alert to what we're losing. And I think that Bifo Baradi is writing fantastic. He's written a lot about this. That's that's also really really fantastic really great like his and phenomenology of the end and future ability looking at the impacts of the technosphere and you know the question of the capitalization of our imaginations of our of us as of the, the non-material non-sellable parts that get are sold and how we're subjecting ourselves to this and have you have you read into his stuff at all i've never even heard the name before you're joking you're joking oh no, my god Bifo, B-I-F-O, Bifo mm-hmm. is his nickname. Oh my um, God, you're going to be like a pig of shit. Yeah, nice. <laughs> his book is, is called And, And Phenomenology of the End. Because his point is, is that and it will go on. You know, we will mm. not have this convenient collapse of our reality, of which human beings have sort of constructed as, but in fact, it's the ongoingness of how are we adapting to the ongoingness of the reality of on what is ongoing, the and, cool dot 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 yeah yeah you yeah. know and it's, it's 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 a really good book and I mean you can see some of his lectures he's Italian he he's responding a lot to the sort of the impacts of what he calls the technosphere for me along with Slavoj they're two p- people who whose work I really feel you know. I don't know. It helps put a perspective on things. It makes it sort of makes sense to me, you know, as much as the Zizek, the jester, the Elvis of cultural theory, all these kind of sort of tropes that get thrown at Slavoj. Actually, I think that, you know, he's much more serious, like the woman that Channel 4 saw, you know, but he's just he just is. He just happens to have this kind of brilliant Monty Python kind of understanding of how to use humour. Mm. It's an 
has that instinct. I mean, satire is the most biting form of political or ideological critique. And, you know, Monty Python, you know, brilliant in, in how they could use humour. I don't think that that uh, that humour negates kind of seriousness at all. The necessity of how to get into these ideas that the humour kind of a great component. I mean, I think that that's actually other another thing that I think is interesting in it, that Slavoj doesn't play these male games of of power. He he kind of undermines that sense of himself that it could be by making jokes, of, uh, you know, and he doesn't manifest a sort of like Badieu is the opposite. He's completely state you know he's so patriarchal and kind of you know sort of impenetrable quality to him as a person he doesn't give anything away of himself as a speaker but there's something Slavoj is a sort of hit like a hysterical has a hysterical quality I was asking him about the AI generated conversation with him and Herzog then suddenly I had a terrible nightmare in this nightmare I woke up and I could see the whole landscape, all the fields and the forests and the mountains. Everything was green and light blue, except there were no living creatures. There were only dead bodies. I had a feeling I was the only one left alive. Then I woke up. That's exactly my nightmare. I have this experience quite often when I am in some public place at night. Yeah, and he said, well, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, they, he said, I, I, I didn't like it because it just didn't make sense. You know, it was sort of annoying because it didn't actually deliver any insight. So he kind of mm. found that annoying. But it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't say something he didn't intend. It just doesn't, it just becomes a sort of fetish of these two people with a very particular way of speaking mm-hmm. who actually fascinating to listen to Herzog and he both have this particular sort of quality to their speech speaking as some people call it international English <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, is, okay. which is often more inventive than na- natural English speakers English agreed um and and so um but his other point was that they cut out all my ticks and all my sniffs and all that they they're not included <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. And also that he and Herzog are thinking of having a real conversation. Oh, really? (laughs) People that you make documentary films with very often. Hmm. And with Slavoj, of course, it's like, I'm just, you know, I just get, it's like so the nourishing nature of throwing yourself into this world of, his thinking is, is is an extraordinary place to be. It, it felt like, you know, you're kind of going through a portal into another parallel way of understanding and seeing the world. And, you know, sometimes these insights in Lacan himself choosing like the big other, you know, these quite simple language deliberately to not mystify it, mm-hmm. um, you know, to make a very simple linguistic model that opens up kind of infinite you know like with 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 no kind of possibility to ever kind of end a way of seeing that in the world and understanding the world through this framework of of thought that Slavoj himself is a kind of very you know he's like an art he 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 operates 
in with this instinct for theory that's not unlike the way an artist might work or or you know any it's it's not he's not bound i think that's why people find it perplexing who think well no you should be it should, history should be this and those are the fact we know stop stop messing it around stop confusing us with but it's to me the sort of equivalence is a bit like when people who are critical now uh, you know the the trend of being critical of slavoj sometimes it take it feels it's a bit like saying to picasso but women don't look like that why are you drawing why are you making this painting of a women don't look like that and it's like well that's not that's not the point because there's another sense in which that you know this experience of being female might or encountering the female might feel like that you know <laughs> i remember once being on actually it was when we were i think arriving or departing from la actually from the perverts guide to cinema because you know we went to interview david lynch because initially when i had constructed the idea of the perverts guide to cinema presented it to channel 4 there was no way that they could understand that this could work just with him talking about film so i put in this lesson we'll interview walter murch and we'll interview david lynch and we'll interview and that made it all seem safe and normal <laughs> and then when i shot it when i shot the material i was like we don't need any of those people we're coming from this particular place that they're, they're not they're not part of this film and i was very confident about that i said to the producer look we don't need to go and interview david lynch it's fine you know let's not go and he said well we said we would we should go so we did this crazy trip to la where we where we we thought we had the david lynch interview and he pulled out 10 minutes before um i think he was terrified of of actually this encounter with slavoj slavoj was <laughs> absolutely it was so relieved. he didn't really want to, <laughs> he couldn't trust himself in this encounter with david lynch <laughs> but it didn't happen but we had this great trip in la and in fact through my connections in the sort of hollywood sort of i think through agents we discerned that Dennis Hopper was filming nearby. So we went and met Dennis Hopper and had lunch with him. Wow. And we went to the set and it was the it was the funniest experience because Dennis Hopper was like radically Republican. Yeah, yeah. Incredibly, incredibly right wing. And he had this hippie assistant who was had this long hair who was like, and he was a bit like Lear's fool, you know, he was coming up and saying to Slavoj, I I know what you're doing. He doesn't get it, I get it, but he you know, and Dennis Hopper was this slightly kind of emaciated version of himself. And Slavoj mm. was saying to me, oh, so daddy doesn't need to fuck. Daddy, daddy looks rather, rather exhausted. Oh, mommy, 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 mommy loves you. Baby wants to fuck. Oh, no, no, we sat in the set and we watched them filming and what they were filming was a replica of the war room at the, the Pentagon or something. It was mm. like this replica of the White House. And Dennis Hopper was playing a sort of hawkish person in the American military. And there were all these talks about, it was a, but they were basically having a discussion about black operations going into Iran. It was one of the so serious and slab and I sat there watching. <laughs> but that was just one of the, but I remember when we were leaving LA, and I said to Slava, my God, you know, when, when I get into filmmaking, everything I see, I think, how would I frame that? How would I frame that? How should I, where would I? And I, he said, that's like me with theory. Everything I look, I get, I start building theories in my mind, start, you know, whatever I'm looking at, there's something 
it's almost like the whole world is, you know, is sort of little object A, kind of provoking <laughs> this need to respond theoretically. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent via Dennis Hopper. A friend of mine had an affair with him in the early 70s, Oof. a German friend of mine. And she said it was so exhausting because he just was obsessed by Connilingus and it was just like <laughs> all he wanted to do all the time. <laughs> Take it after a while. <laughs> Get off. Exhausting. I love, I love that. <laughs> Well, that's um, that's one of the reactions that people have to Zizek's work, right? Where they go, oh, you you know, you're developing some kind of argument, and you know, if they're being uncharitable, they'll say something like, "It's associative writing. That's not uh, it's not connected. It's just all these disparate ideas." But there is an underlying project to Zizek's work. I think it's an interesting thing with the effect that the guides have had. Because I think a lot of Zizek's popularity or like the public's interest in Zizek, especially for a younger generation, and they're, you know. I, did, this... I love the idea of, I'm very aware of the Chinese, the young Chinese interest in, in, in Zizek, because actually, if you are coming from that history and cultural route, um, you know, it's a very good way to see what the West is. You know, you actually could understand a lot more through, about, you know, to see through things um and um in the way you know through but I, I i also i did love the idea when you know channel four and film four were kind of like there's no audience for this that for zizek we would struggle to find an audience at a one line response from channel four we would struggle to find an audience for this film and then i just thought that was just you know why because it's not love island or you know it's that this is because they've gone so far to the mainstream and to basic sort of you know and entertainment just pure and anyway, the point is that um, I was for having this fantasy. Could I finance the film? Could I could I actually finance the film through crowdfunding from Chinese people? I just thought yeah, that yeah, would yeah. be such a great repost. There's so much fear of China, you know, this fear of China. Fear. I love it. Yes, it was financed by the Chinese, <laughs> Chinese GoFundMe page. You know, I wouldn't, you know, that we are making some headway now, but that. That was that's I'm very aware of that interest in 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 his work in China from the Chinese students that I, I work with. Well, I think the style of the guides have sort of lended themselves to this bite-sized video sharing culture, like with your a TikTok or a YouTube video or an Instagram reel and all the different variations on the platforms. These things get shared hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times, they spread across all of the internet, all of the time. In these big waves, there'll be a renewed interest. And the negative side to it is being taken out of context or just the fact that Zizek is funny or he is like an odd guy. He will get caricatured or lampooned as like some sort of total moron, um, a buffoon, right? Like, or the what do they say? Like the fourth Marx brother. Right? I, think, I think that that comes from more sort of domesticated academic intellectual elite, like Leah's fool. Like he's whispering, you know, into their ear with something that is sort of destabilizing because it's not neat. 
in that sense. When I make these films, they're born out of really careful reduction. And in fact, they are intended to be seen in their totality because of the development of ideas that's happening across them. And the only thing I would say about, you know, the young people that I encounter that see bite-sized bits and see things. In fact, the Jordan Peterson conversation, that drew a lot of people into an awareness of Slavoj that they hadn't had. We can think that he, you know, we see, we know the impact that he has, but outside of a certain environment, I mean, a lot of, in the film industry, weren't really aware of him. People would say to me, so where did you find this guy? You know, I was sitting in a cafe and, or, or, you know, and this guy suddenly starts saying this and you go, oh, you're interested, you know, like as if I'd found him like a character. Right. And I was going, no, he's actually, he's a, he's a, he's an intellectual, you know, he's a psychoanalyst and philosopher. You know, it's <laughs> like, there was, there's a lot of, you know, you get, as much as there's waves that go through based on a certain algorithm that who knows what, mm. so, there's also just huge areas of disconnect. That's part of the this the new world, the brave new world that we're in, where you know everything is shifting. There's, there isn't an obvious structure for where you can find what you want to find. It's everything is like a, it's like a big washing machine. It's always slightly horrific to think that there's just some short bit that's kind of bouncing around when you know that it's it's all very carefully constructed and 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 extracted from reading, you know, figuring out how it can work as a film. In order to understand today's world, we need cinema, literally. It's only in cinema that we get that crucial dimension which we are not ready to confront in our reality. If you are looking for what is in reality more real than reality itself, look into the cinematic fiction.